Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, the episode I wanted to do a few weeks ago is finally here. Uh, we're going to talk about some classic UFO stories from Socorro, New Mexico and Dayton, Texas. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. And welcome to episode 5.06 of Small Town Secrets. And I have come to the conclusion that this house either is cursed against coffee makers or is haunted by a ghost that was killed by a coffee maker and now destroys every one of them. In the past, I want to say year, maybe year and a half, I think we've gone through 
through like four or five coffee makers. Little ones, like little single use, you know, you put the cake up in, you fill up how much water you want, you make a cup of coffee. We had one that worked great for a long time, and then it just stopped. Uh, I have the exact same type of that one at work, and it goes on strong to this day. Then we got another one, and that one screwed up. And then uh, July of last year, I went and bought like a good $100 single-use Keurig coffee maker. And it worked great for like a month and a half. And then it just was like, I'm just going to stop brewing halfway through and then make you unplug me and plug me back in and then hit the button again. And then I'll finish. Uh, so that one doesn't really work anymore. It just kind of quit as well. And I just tried. Now we have another one. I just tried to make a cup of coffee for tonight. And uh, like I leave. I go in. Like I let it do its thing. And uh, I go in to grab it. And I see that it is overflowing. But not overflowing from like my cup. It's not like I put too much water in it. It's overflowing from like inside the reservoir. Like where you put the K cup. And I was like, huh. That's not great. So I wonder if, like, maybe I didn't puncture the bottom of it enough or something. So I cleaned everything up, put a cake up in it, pushed it down so that it, like, you know, here, I heard it go, like, pop. And then uh, tried it all again. And it happened again. So either something is clogging it or it is it, too, has suffered from the curse of the coffee maker. So I'm without stimulants tonight. I have a bottle of water here. That's it. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But no, tonight is... This was originally going to be episode four for this season. That's what I had it slated to be. And uh, I was well on track to making it episode four. Uh, I had a book uh, on Socorro, New Mexico called Encounter in the Desert. I've had the book forever, since like the first season. But just now I've decided to, you know, oh, let's do it. Let's break it out and do it for the show. Uh, started reading the book, got a few chapters into it. That, that was probably end of November. Haven't seen the book since. No idea where it is. It's probably wherever my old pair of glasses ended up. That I also lost around the same time. Actually, if I had a guess, I bet you somewhere it's in the Jeep. It's like underneath a seat in the back or something. I'll, I'm sure I'll find it tomorrow after the episode is done. Uh, so instead, I had the swap episode. So the Lilydale episode was going to be this episode, and this episode was going to be the Lilydale episode. Uh, but that's why, because my my book mysteriously vanished. So I just broke down, bought Encounter in the Desert a second time on my Kindle, because I was like, I can't lose this. Even if something happens to my iPad, I can read it on my MacBook, I can read it on my phone. You know, I, I can, I'll be able to get to this book and take notes on it. So here it is. I was finally able to get it, finally able to read the book. And uh, get this episode together. So tonight we are talking just some good old UFO cases again uh, in Socorro, New Mexico. And of course, the very mysterious Cash Landrum incident, as it is known of, out of Dayton, Texas. So we've got that. We, of course, have some local headlines. We have uh, one small town secret this week. Uh, I need stories. So I'm going to put this up right at the beginning of the show. If you have a story or an experience, or a cat scratching at the door. I think he's scratching at the door. He doesn't want in. He's just doing it to piss me off. I think he stopped. Uh, if you have a story or an experience that you would like to share from your small town, 
uh, please get it to me. Go to stscast.com, uh, hit up social media, all of that, and uh, I will help get it on the show. But uh, I think that'll about do it uh, for the intro. Let's move on to Socorro, New Mexico. Hi, folks. My name is Miranda McLaughlin, and I'm the host of All Things Dreams, a podcast dedicated to dream experiences and dream interpretation. Are you curious about dreams, but don't have time for all that pesky research? Well, then you're in luck, because you can leave the research to me and just tune into All Things Dreams, where we discuss loads of different dream experiences, dream themes, and dream topics like sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming, inception dreams, and so much more. Just check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. The sleepy town of Socorro lies 140 miles north of Las Cruces, a town that was put on the map in 1964 when a humble police officer saw something he could not explain. Lonnie Zamora had served both in the Korean War and the National Guard. For 23 years, he was in the National Guard. In the 60s, he was employed as a police officer for the Socorro Police Department. On the afternoon of April 24, 1964, Officer Zamora was in pursuit of a speeding car. Soon into the chase, he heard a loud uh, roar, followed by something that sounded like an explosion. The sound came from Zamora's southwest. Lonnie immediately gave up on the car and headed for the source of the sound. He knew there was a dynamite shack in that area and thought that it may have exploded. Uh, and that's the first thing I love about this case is, like, just imagine back in the 60s where there was just a shack on the outside of town that was just full of dynamite uh, for for whatever reason. I don't know what you, I don't know what dynamite shacks were used for, but apparently there was one, and this is what uh, made him break chase and go in the other direction. This was his reasoning for it. As he approached, he noticed a brilliant cone of blue flame over the hills. Zamora pulled his squad car off the road and headed for the Aurora that he had seen this thing come out of. He looked down into the Aurora and saw what at first he thought was a flipped car, but soon realized it was not. He described the object as a bright egg-shaped white object. The object had landed and was being supported by what appeared to be some sort of landing gear. It was four legs into the ground. Zamora also observed two beings in white coveralls huddled around the object. He would go on to describe these beings as being uh, small in size, like that of young 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 boys. And uh, they looked quite normal to him. They didn't look like alien greys or anything weird. They just looked like small people. He wasn't sure what he was seeing, but decided to drive further down into the Aurora and offered his assistance. While driving further on, he radioed the incident into dispatch. He requested that Sergeant Sam Chavez join him. Uh, he wanted, he uh, trusted Chavez. He knew that if this turned out to be something weird, like had been going on, you know, the 60s were ripe with uh, encounters like this, that he wanted someone sympathetic to him. He wanted a friend, someone he knew, to come out alone and check it out with him. So he requested Sergeant Sam Chavez uh, to come out. He also lost sight of that object momentarily as he drove on. 
and after he called it in, Zamora grabbed his tape recorder and got out of the car. As he exited his vehicle, uh, he dropped the microphone to the tape recorder. He bent down to pick it up, and it was in that moment he heard the same loud roar. He dove for the ground, but he was able to get a quick look at the object as it flew straight up in the air with the same cone of blue flame underneath it. As it flew off, Lonnie, uh, he noticed more details of the craft. It was smooth. It didn't have any windows or any doors that he could make out. And it also had a red symbol on the side of the craft, and we'll get into the red symbol later. While all of this was happening, Sergeant Chavez was fingerprinting a prisoner. When uh, the call came in, Chavez turned the prisoner over to another officer and drove off towards Zamora's location. The station was actually uh, pretty close to the Aurora, but Chavez was delayed slightly as he took a wrong turn while driving down Park Street and had to turn around. Uh, there is some back and forth on this if Chavez showed up in time to see the craft in the sky. Uh, I think by most accounts he didn't, but you know, every once in a while something pops up where he says, "Yes, I did," and or Zamora said he did, you know. But it's one of those one of those debated details that you get with a lot of these reports, especially people trying to remember details from when it happened, you know, after the fact. The two men went to investigate the landing site. They found a bush still smoldering from the takeoff, as well as four landing pad impressions in the dirt. They also found scorched grass and rocks, which were already cool to the touch. Within minutes, other troopers started to arrive, some state troopers, some other people, because they had all heard it over the radio. After that, Chavez decided to call Captain T. Holder at the nearby White Sands Missile Range. Holder was commander at the base at the time, and even though the base was some 50 miles away, he actually lived in Socorro. Chavez thought that what Zamora had seen may have been something from the base. Nearby FBI agent Arthur Brines was also made aware of the sighting, and uh, I'm gonna, I want to backtrack on this a little bit. Here is another uh, confusing part of the story. It doesn't really matter in the end, but there is uh, some discussion as did Chavez call Holder, and then Holder got a call to the FBI, but then there are other accounts that says that's not how it happened. Um, Brines heard, also heard what was going on over, over his radio and decided to call Holder at the base to come and look. So we're now at the two points of the story, which uh, seem to have a couple of different paths taken. But like I said, this one, it doesn't really matter, I guess, in the end who got there for, you know, the fact is that everyone had heard about it was now converging on the site. However it happened, uh, they were the first two government officials on scene that day. These two men also interviewed Zamora at the police station about what he'd seen. He told them about the craft, the beans, and the red symbol on the craft. Brines made a suggestion to him, uh, don't mention the beans for now. People will probably make fun of you. And then Holder chimed in with his own suggestion, uh, not to mention the symbol. The idea being that it would help verify other reports of that would come in of the craft, sort of like withholding a detail see if people are making stuff up 
you know, if they reported any other sightings, they would go, oh, I saw that craft too with that symbol on it. They'd be like, no, you didn't. So that was his, that was his uh, reasoning behind it. And there's something else that comes to mind when I think about it, and we'll get to it kind of here at the end. After the interview, they went back to the site where military police had cordoned off the area. They encircled the landing gear imprints with rocks to protect them. Samples of rocks and foliage were taken, as well as pictures. Impressions of what appeared to be small footprints were also discovered, like five feet away from the impressions of this landing gear. Zamora would give, rather reluctantly, interviews to newspapers and other sources, even APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. They would publish his account in their newsletter, and they published a drawing, apparently using the correct description of the symbol, and then they later used a different symbol. And so over the years, the correct symbol has become a bone of contention and uh, to many, and APRO, using both of them, didn't help the confusion. So I don't know if... I, I just this is really a confusing part like he was told like hey don't tell anyone about the correct version of the symbol but then he goes on and does it but then they go on and re kind of retract that and reprint it again but like did he do it did he just slip up you know he's always kind of main I mean there's other drawings that were made of it and all of this and sometimes it's this symbol sometimes it's that symbol and it's just become this quagmire over the years. Uh, but I'll get more into it here in a little bit. J. Allen Hynek of Project Blue Book arrived in Sirocco via hitchhiking after his car suffered a flat tire uh, on April 28th. So he got there four days after it had happened. He was able to interview both Zamora and Chavez. Hynek also visited the site, but by this time it had been trampled by tourists and was uh, pretty much destroyed. Heineck was not able to retrieve much from the site. However, Ray Stanford, a member of NICAP, who was also with them at the site, discovered a charred and scratched rock that had been broken in half. He thought that it may have been cracked open due to the landing gear crushing it, and it may have some sort of evidence on it. Heineck seemed unimpressed, but Stanford would come back to the site later that night, take some pictures of it, and collect the rock himself. Nothing ever really came of it. I just thought it was kind of interesting that, hey, what about this? And no one no one really seemed to give two shakes about it. So as I said earlier, here we go with the symbol. The symbol on the side of the craft has become a great uh, thing of confusion among people who research the case. Zamora made a quick sketch on a scrap piece of paper before Chavez arrived on the scene, which is what he should have done. He's, you know, he's like, I got to document this. I got to get something down. So he had a piece of scrap paper, like in his car, whatever, and he made a sketch right there on the spot. He drew an inverted V with a line uh, in between it, an arc above it, and then like another line underneath it. So pretty much an arrow with an arc over it, and a horizontal line underneath it, I think. The horizontal line might have been there. Uh, I think he also made another sketch during his interview at the police station, like his initial interview, and it was very much the same. But there's another one 
that floats around out there, and that is uh, an A, not really an A, but like a triangle with an open bottom. So an A without the middle line, with three lines going through it. And that was apparently supposed to be the one that was the fake one. But the confusion kind of comes in because J. Allen Hynek, for a very long time, used to point to the A, you know, the A with the lines through it, as being the correct symbol. But then later, you know, uh, someone's going through old Blue Book files, which I think were going to get thrown out, and he decided to save them. I don't remember the person's name off the top of my head. And uh, those ended up in, like, a garage sale, and someone found them and looked through these old, these old Blue Book files and found Zamora's original sketches and has pretty much confirmed that the arrow symbol, the arrow head symbol, as they like to call it, is the correct symbol. Uh, and I think there's still people that argue that to this day. And sometimes people talk about a third symbol, which was like a triangle with like a line on one side of it, another line on the other side of it, and a line on the bottom. Like, <laughs> But that one doesn't come up as much, so I'm not really sure, sure about that one. So, was Sirocco a UFO? It very well could have been. I think there's a lot of things to point to that. It did make it into the Blue Book files, and I believe it was unidentified, and Hynek said he never found anything concrete enough for him to say that it was anything else, and he never really believed that Zamora was making it up or uh, lying or anything about that. But over the years, there have been other possible explanations to what have might have landed that day in Socorro. Infamous UFO debunker Philip J. Class uh, said it was all done for publicity and to help drive tourism to the slowly dying town. He claimed that the land the sighting took place on was nothing but worthless scrubland owned by the mayor at the time. He would go on to say that Zamora and the mayor, since the mayor would have been Zamora's like direct superior, uh, cooked up this plan to help drive money into the area. And yes, uh, a year after this, the city did kind of make up some signs and they had graded the roadway to make it easier to get to the site, but they never really made it into anything. I think now if you go there, there's some stuff like they do talk about it on their official website, and I'm sure there's like a placard or something out there if you go look for it. But at the time, they were going to do some stuff, but then they didn't. But here's the real kicker. The mayor never owned the land. It was owned by the Delia Harris estate at the time, and then it was sold on to somebody else. So the mayor uh, didn't own it. He never owned it. And uh, yeah, I don't agree with that at all. I just wanted to bring attention to some of the some of the things that debunkers like Class and others would go to to try and disprove something. Uh, but yeah, that's one thing, which I don't think obviously happened. Others have suggested that it was a hoax concocted by students at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. Over the years, various stories and names have been thrown around, but no concrete narrative about who would have done such a thing or how they would have done it. And so none of this has ever really come to light. Like, it is a weird thing. The more you think about it, the more that falls apart, at least to me. Like, could it have been a hoax? Yes. 
But think of the grandiose plan to, to pull it off. Like, in the book, in Encounter in the Desert, they talk about how um, the students also used to say that Zamora used to pick on them because they were like these, you know, better than the high, you know, they were these kind of uppity college kids, right? And so they, they had used, they had made this hoax to, to get back on him. But like, think about it for a little bit. You have to, you have to get Zamora to the site to do this. So does that mean the speeding car was a plant to get Zamora to chase it so that he could then be diverted almost a mile away? He had to drive, like, it's 4,000 feet away from where he diverted or something like that. So he had to drive not quite a mile away to get to where this all happened. So all that has to be orchestrated, right? Like, what do they, what do, they do, just sit around the desert for days just hoping that Zamora or someone would come along out and hear the bang or whatever. I don't know, maybe. Maybe they just made a big loud noise to see if someone would show up, and then they pulled it all off. But if they were trying to actually target Zamora and get back at him, it just seems like it's got to be... There's a lot of moving parts to that plan. Like, what if Zamora decided not to chase down the speeder? Maybe he had his quota for the month, and he didn't care anymore. You know, there's so many things that could have gone... That had to go right in order for this to happen, and apparently it happened. It worked perfectly for them. So, it, it could it have been a hoax? I don't think Zamora hoaxed anything. Could it something have been perpetrated on him? Possibly, but I would really like to hear how it was pulled off, if that's the case. And how about Dave E. Thomas? I make sure to say E, because if I say Dave Thomas, you're all going to think I'm talking about the Wendy's guy. I'm not talking about the Wendy's guy. This Dave Thomas was from. It's from the uh, New Mexicans for Science and Reason organization. And uh, he backed up a little bit of what Sergeant Chavez thought may have happened. He found out that White Sands had been involved in testing a lunar surveyor at the time, and that they were using helicopters to transport this machine around to various sites. And like I said, this has some merit to it. The surveyor was painted a similar white color to what Zamora saw. It did have four legs, much like the landing gear that, that was seen. The helicopter would have had a pilot and an engineer on board, so two people, and they would have been in coveralls. However, this doesn't account for everything. Uh, the coveralls at the time should have been gray. So Army issue coveralls at the time were like a gray color, not white. Also, the time for the test that would have been ran that day don't match up with the incident. Uh, they would have been conducted in the morning, and this happened like in late, late evening, like late afternoon, early evening, sometime around there. It also doesn't account, at least to me, uh, for the cone of flame or the loud roars and explosions. I mean, I suppose it is like a lunar thing. It probably had some sort of propulsion or something to slow it down, you know. But, like, would they have done that that close to a town, to a residential area? Would they have, like, let's uh, let's fire her up? You know, I'm, I don't think so. I'm assuming that the helicopter was used to lift it and drop it. And so, I don't know. Like, I kind of like this idea, and I kind of don't. Um, I'm not set that maybe it was a lunar surveyor, but I am willing to entertain the idea that it may have been something 
from White Sands. Because I think about the symbol. Back to the symbol. If the symbol had been something put, put on it for who knows what reason, maybe it was done to identify it to, to people at White Sands that only they would know what the symbols mean. It was a sort of code so they would know which unit was of which and no one else would. And then I think, did Holder know that? And that's why he suggested that Zamora not disclose the actual symbol because he didn't want that coming out? I'm kind of spitballing here. Actually, I'm not kind of. I'm completely spitballing here. But, like, maybe Holder knew more about this thing than he let on, and he was trying to do some damage control. I don't know. Uh, and maybe one of these days we'll get some some freedom of information stuff and and we'll figure it all out. Or it'll turn out to be an actual UFO, which I think either way is pretty pretty interesting. If it's a UFO, great. If it's some weird super top secret craft that we still don't know what it is, also pretty cool. And that's really it uh, for the story itself. And as for Lonnie Zamora, well, he was treated like many UFO witnesses at the time. He grew tired of the interviews, the ridicule, the UFO chasers, the military, all of it. And over the years, he would distance himself from the subject. However, he also got many letters from people who supported him and believed his story, and they shared and wanted to share their own story with him as well. Ten years after the sighting, he quit the police force and took a job as a landfill supervisor until he retired. And Mr. Zamora died of a heart attack in 2009. And that'll about sum up. I mean, it goes on. It's one of the more interesting unidentified cases from Blue Book. Um, and I think I think it's gotten a lot of life breathed back into it. Um, it's featured in the new phenomenon documentary that a lot of people have been talking about. Uh, I've linked to it in the show notes if you want to take that a look. It's a, it's a great, great little rundown of stuff that's happened in the past leading up to what's happening now with, you know, the Tic Tac UFOs and all that stuff. But <clears throat> I think that's breathed some new life into it. And I think before that, the finding of the old Blue Book documents that were just going to be thrown out helped breathe life back into it again as well. And that that pretty much sums up the Socorro, New Mexico case so we're going to have a boom, I'm going to take a little break, and then we're going to talk about what happened near Dayton, Texas in 1980. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The town of Dayton, Texas actually started out as a town known as West Liberty, as it was on the west side of the Trinity River from the town of Liberty. But in 1980, three residents of Dayton would witness something in the sky that would affect them in more ways than one for the rest of their lives. On the night of December 29, 1980, Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Vicki's grandson, seven-year-old Colby Landrum were driving from Huffman to their home in Dayton, Texas. At around 9 p.m., the trio noticed a strange light in the sky. Eventually, that light came straight at them. They saw what they described as a diamond-shaped object with fire shooting out from underneath it as it flew at them. It came close enough to the car that everyone in the car could feel intense heat radiating from the object. As the UFO hovered in front of them, Betty Cash actually got out of the car to get a closer look, as she took this as a sign to be the second coming of Christ. Soon, however, the heat became too much for her, and she got back inside of the vehicle. It was at that moment that the three saw Army helicopters come over the trees. Later, Colby would say that there were as many as 23 helicopters chasing the object that night. The helicopters came, and this caused the object to go off, actually, I think probably back towards 
Huffman. I think it was going west because I'll get into it a little bit because people I think had seen it before they had saw it in Dayton, which means it had to flown over Dayton, flown past them, and then continued going west. And uh, these helicopters, uh, they might be backed up by the uh, military's own investigation of the case. While little is known about that investigation, a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, has gotten some documents released. And one of those is a memo written by the lead of the investigation saying that 100 helicopters had landed at Robert Gray Airfield that evening. I've linked in the show notes the episode of UFO Hunters. It's actually a pretty good episode on this. And they talk to this guy, and uh, he talks about how, like, you know, like, he, he it's kind of great because he says, oh, no, no, there wasn't anything. And then they're like, well, we have a FOIA document. It's a memo that you wrote in the investigation yourself saying that there were 100 helicopters that landed at Robert Gray Airfield. And then he kind of backtracks, and he's like, well, that's not, oh, you know, that, that airfield isn't anything that important it's just used on the weekends da 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 and then i'm sitting there thinking like well if i had a hundred helicopters uh, chasing ufos all over texas one night i'd probably have them land someplace uh inconspicuous and out of the way too but it's kind of entertaining me i've linked it to the show notes you can watch it for free on youtube give that one a watch these helicopters were twin rotor boeing ch-47 chinooks and the cash landrum party weren't the only ones who saw them that night, as I just said. Lamar Walker, a Dayton police officer at the time, and his wife also witnessed a series of Chinooks fly over the town earlier that evening. He says he saw the helicopters, but he never saw any UFOs. Resident Jerry McDonald did see the craft that night. He described a very similar diamond-shaped object that night and he saw it from his backyard. The next few days after his sighting, McDonald said he would become sick, but was ultimately unfazed and unharmed. Betty, Vicky, and Colby were not so lucky. Vicky and Colby suffered from slight burns and vomiting for weeks after the incident, but it would be Betty Cash who suffered the most. Betty was admitted to Parkway Hospital on three separate occasions after the sighting, she had developed severe burns, blisters on her face, and a hair loss. Betty appeared to have suffered from progressive radiation exposure. It would take around two grays of radiation absorption to suffer from these types of symptoms. To put that in perspective, an abdominal x-ray is about 0.7 milligrays, so very, very little. And an exposure of five grays could result in death within 14 days. What's more is according to Betty's daughter, Betty was moved during her final hospital stay. She claims her mother was transferred from a normal hospital room to an isolated room in the hospital's basement. This room had a hazardous material sign on the door. And then when she went to go and visit her at this room, she was always escorted by hospital staff. And this always gives me kind of um, slight memories of the Todd C's case. I did it a while ago about the guy who went missing for a couple days and he was found. And, you know, he wasn't allowed to be seen by his family because uh, he was found dead. And his body was not allowed to be seen by his family because he was highly radioactive. 
you know, just here we go with radio, radioactivity again and weird UFO stuff. For 18 years, Betty would suffer ongoing mental conditions as a result of what happened that night. She died in 1998 on December 29th. So she died on the 18th anniversary of the UFO encounter. And I, it's weird. I, I don't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but like that stuff happens all the time. Like, you always get stuff like, oh, they found him, you know, they found his body in the woods four years to the day that he went missing. It's, you know, like, that is always happening. Like, I'm going to have to start keeping track of how many times someone, like, something significant happens on the anniversary of something else that's significant in the same story. I bet it happens a lot more uh, than we think. I know I, I seem to stumble upon it all the time. There were other strange events that happened in Dayton after that night as well. Days after the incident, witnesses reported seeing road workers in black trucks. They had cordoned off the section of the road where the incident happened and had removed the asphalt. In recent years, and they do this on that episode of UFO Hunters, uh, they uh, took a section, like a core sample, from the road and like a control sample from further up on the road, and it showed that reef that repavements had happened. But according to the Harrison County records, no construction, repaving, or other like big maintenance had been done on that road since 1980. And that kind of tracks. So they found that like someone was here, they did repave the road. But there's no record since 1980. And if you remember, it happened on December 29th. Like, that's almost the end of the year. So if they had a week later or whatever, they had come and the government had come in to get pieces of this road because they think it's irradiated or whatever, some evidence is there they want, it would have been 1981. So, you know, that's that's a that's an interesting tidbit to chew on for a little bit. Also, in April of 1981, about four months after the encounter, uh, Betty and Colby were at the county fair, and a Chinook pilot was there. He had flown the helicopter in and uh, was just there talking about it. Like, I'm sure it was something for, for the fair, right? And he actually ended up talking with Vicky and Colby, but during the conversation, when he found out who they were and what they were trying to get him to talk about, he clammed up, saying he could not say anything further because of national security. In 1981, Vicky and Betty filed a lawsuit against the U.S. federal government for $20 million. The case was ultimately dismissed in 1986 because they could not prove the source of the helicopters, nor could they prove that the military possessed this diamond-shaped craft. Vicki Landrum died just seven days before her 84th birthday on September 12th, 2007. Colby Landrum is now the only survivor of the three that night, and he continues his search for answers. I really like this case as like a bona fide UFO case. It has, like, it's got the government in it. It's got helicopters. You know, it's got documents. We have evidence of someone that had, I mean, say what you will, but Betty did go through that. 
there are hospital records. You can't get all of them, which is kind of weird in itself. Like the doctor, there was a doctor that treated her for those 18 years pro bono. He did it just out of the kindness of his heart. And even he, after her death, can't get all of her records from that hospital. But it happened. She had the, you know, she had the, the burns. She had the hair loss. There's photos of it. There's other witnesses to the event. Uh, there's some strange goings on. This is a great UFO case. Can't chalk this one up to, uh, you know, they weren't really making up a story unless they were out doing something that night with something very, very radioactive that they shouldn't have been around, which I don't see how that's happening. I can't, so I can't chalk it up to them making up a story. I can't chalk it up to being like a government craft. Uh, it may have been, but like, it seems very, uh, obvious to me and most people that that thing was being chased by the military it wasn't in the military's control so i don't think it was some sort of secret craft like what might have happened uh, in socorro now i think this is just bona fide 100 ufo and uh with that that is socorro new mexico and uh dayton texas the cash landrum case the lonnie zamora case uh we're going to take an intermission going to play some music as always and i will be back after that with your local headlines Okay, and we have a, a smattering of news stories this episode, varied ones from all over the place. 
This first one is from the Toronto Star in uh, Toronto, Canada, uh, written by John Bolvin. And we have a possible Bigfoot sighting shocks, excites Silverton residents. Twas the night before Christmas, and through the West Coot, not a creature was sighted except maybe Bigfoot. At least that's how the famous poem could go after a group of travelers spotted what they say might have been a Bigfoot, also known as a Sasquatch, near Silverton on Christmas night. The four friends were heading to their home on Highway 6 just south of Silverton on the evening of December 25th, when the people in the front of the vehicle saw what looked like a huge man-like figure on the side of the road. I didn't see the creature myself. I saw the prince, says Erica Spink D'Souza, who was in the back seat. She became the informal spokesperson for her companions. But the person on the front seat cried out, oh my gosh, look at that. They said it looked like a huge grizzly or it was a large man standing up. Before Spink D'Souza could catch a glimpse, the figure turned, went on all fours, and headed into the deep bush. We tried to look around, uh, to turn around and look again, but it was gone, she says. After arriving home and putting her kids to bed, they returned to the scene to look for signs of the mysterious creature. We saw all these different tracks, and then we saw these tracks that were really alarming, she recalls. They were bipedal tracks in a straight line into the woods. I got a little spooked. It was alarming to see such big prints. There were no bear tracks. Spink the Souza and the others examined and photographed the tracks, and then she filed a report with the Bigfoot with a Bigfoot organization online. The head of the Bigfoot Field Research Group, Matt Moneymaker, who also co-hosted the Long Range Animal Planet TV show called Finding Bigfoot, described the tracks as unhoaxable. The surrounding pristine snow proves the tracks were not fabricated by humans, he says. The stride length is beyond the ability of a human trying to leak through knee-deep snow. The drag marks and death marks of the tracks prove they are not from a leaping rabbit. The linear pattern shows that it was not a bear. Moneymaker also says it's unlikely someone was trying to hoax random travelers on an empty stretch of road on Christmas night. Spink to Souza, who just recently moved to the era, says she had never seen anything like this happen to her before, though she's heard of weird animal sounds and howling in the bush around her new home. She says, local, she says locals she's spoken to have generally accepted her claim. Well, it's the Kootenays, they say, she said. I tell them what happened, and they start telling me their Bigfoot stories. People were saying, oh, that's the Wanderer. There's a Sasquatch who wanders around here, she says. It sounds like... Around here, people are pretty open to the possibility that there is one. The sighting was strong enough that members of the Okanagan Bigfoot group returned to the location about 10 days after the sighting. But after investigating the scene and examining the tracks carefully, the team put a damper on the excitement. They suspect the tracks are from a very large moose, says Moneymaker, who's based in California. The witness may have seen a large female moose facing forward and mistook it for a man-like figure. But since nearly two weeks had passed since the initial sighting, Moneymaker says there's still room to believe. It's up in the air, he says. In most cases, I can usually say it's looking more and more one way than the other, but in this case, I can't. I think there are moose tracks in the area, yes, but there are witnesses who say they did not see a moose. Moneymaker says he'd love someone with a drone to fly along the trail of the purported tracks and see where they lead. 
Sasquatches are thought by some to be present in Western Kootenay. Paranormal researchers believe it could be a lost subspecies of hominid like the extinct Gigantopithecus, a large ape-like creature whose remains have been found in, the, in Southeast Asia. However, no convincing physical evidence has ever been found to support these claims. For Speak to Souza, the incident has left her with a larger sense of magic in the world. It leaves me with a sense of awe and wonderment on the beautiful mysteries of this world, she says, noting indigenous cultures recognize the existence of the Sasquatch. In terms of looking for evidence in concrete ways, that's fine, but I do hold a respect that our people around here know of the existence of Sasquatch, and that's marvelous. If you see a Sasquatch, you're invited to contact the Bigfoot Field Research Organization through their website. This next one is from NewCenterMaine.com. I don't see a name on it, but the headline reads, 26-foot basking shark washes up on shore in Bremen on Tuesday. Bremen, Maine. A 26-foot male basking shark washed up on the shore of Greenland Cove in Bremen Tuesday morning. The Maine Department of Marine Resources, the DMR, tells News Center Maine. DMR scientists, bureau staff, and Marine Patrol arrived on the scene around 9.30 a.m. after being notified by local fishermen. There is no known cause of death at this time. DMR staff took samples of the shark, which they say will be used to conduct dietary, aging, and genetic, genetic analysis. DMR spokesperson Jeff Nicholas says that the department has recently joined in a collaborative research effort known as the New England White Shark Research Consortium to study white sharks and will be working with members of the consortium to conduct this analysis. The basking shark is the second largest fish in the world and the largest shark that lives in the waters off of New England. A mature basking shark can be uh, 20 to 28 feet in length. They are not considered a risk to humans as they are gentile, zooplankton eaters. They can be found throughout the world, including the Gulf of Maine, where they come every year to feed on crustaceans and cephalopods. They feed near the surface, which is why they are called basking sharks. They, basking sharks, sorry. They appear to be basking in the sun. And I, I want to do that uh, short little story for two reasons. One, the pictures are pretty interesting to take a look at. Just this huge, huge thing, like you know, in Maine on the on the shore. And the other one is it 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 harkened back to a time, uh, a long time ago, like eleven years ago, twelve years ago, back when blogging was like the big thing to do. Uh, I had a blog, a paranormal blog. And I believe, and the most popular story I ever did was a news story about like a basking shark that had washed up somewhere, but everyone thought like, oh, it's a sea monster. And then there was all this stuff. Because the thing about basking sharks is like, and, and a lot of other sharks, like when they start to decay, that cartilage uh, skeleton they have, because they don't have bones, they have cartilage, it starts to, it starts to fray and splinter off, and it looks like fine hairs. So people always used to think like basking sharks and other large sharks washing up the beach were like these weird sea monsters because they thought it was hair. And there was, you know, that was the that was basically the story. It was like, oh, is it this? Is it a basking shark? Uh, I think in the end it might have turned out to be like a sculpture or something. But like to this day, even though I haven't written that blog is defunct, I can't even really log into it anymore. But even to this day, like every once in a while I'll get an email from uh, WordPress like that 
someone has commented on that. It's got, you know, it's like it was by far the most viral thing I ever put. It was like, hey, here's another one. Let's see what happens. The last one is from clickforlando.com. I don't even know if this one has a name on it either. Uh, I don't see one. No, but it is two arrested in theft of human skulls from the Mount Dora Cemetery. Mount Dora, Florida. DNA on cigars led to the arrest of two men who pried open caskets, stole human skulls from the D Mount Dora Cemetery so they could be used in religious rituals, according to the Lake County Sheriff's officials. The men, 43-year-old Brian Multivo uh, Talentino and 39-year-old Juan Bragaz Lopez, were arrested in Polk County after they were identified through DNA, deputies said. The remains were stolen in early December from Edgewood Cemetery at 3333 Britt Road. Deputies said while they were investigating, they found cigars that were sent for DNA processing. The results were ran through a database, and the results showed a match to Talentino of Davenport Records Show. A warrant was obtained to get the DNA sample from Talentino on Wednesday. On that same day, detectives met with Talentino, and he confessed to going to the cemetery with Lopez, using a crowbar to open the vaults and removing the heads of the deceased, according to a news release. Talentino said that he held up in a plastic bag while Lopez grabbed the heads and put them inside, according to the affidavit. The Lake County Sheriff's Office said the vandals disturbed four graves and attempted to access a fifth. Detectives said that evidence suggests the incident was likely to be some sort of ritualistic activity. Mother and daughter, Tanya and Emma Booth, were driving along Britt Road in Mount Dora December 6th when they spotted an open casket. They went to the cemetery to get a closer look and then called 911. It was just concrete thrown around, said Emma. The bodies were exposed and dismembered, said Tanya. A search warrant was executed at Lopez's Lake Wales home Wednesday night, and deputies said they found six skulls, a hand, a partial arm, and multiple other large bones within what they believed was a religious shrine. Records show Lopez said four of the skulls were taken from graves and two were obtained from other practitioners. One of the skulls belonged to an army veteran laid at rest at Edgewood Cemetery. Being a veteran myself, it makes me angry, they gave the ultimate sacrifice, and they gave them the ultimate disrespect, said Emma. Deputies talked to residents who live nearby, and they said they did not hear any loud noises coming from the cemetery. It's sickening. We're both just devastated and flabbergasted, said Tanya. And now the booths are relieved the families involved will get justice. No family should have to go through this. Once you put your family to rest, that should be the end of it, said Tanya. Lopez and Talentino are, are facing four accounts of disturbing the contents of a grave and four accounts of abuse of a dead human body. So there we go. We got to throw a good old uh, Florida story in, in every once in a while. And that has been another round of your local headlines. And like I said, we've only got one your small town secret tonight. And it was given to me by a, I can't make this up, history podcast, a fellow a strange pod podcaster. And he uh, turned me on to the Collingwood Art Center building. 
which is actually in Toledo. So this isn't a small town secret. It's a big town secret. But once I kind of saw a picture of like what it looked like, because it is exactly what you would expect it. It's a big building just with ivy all over it. And it's pretty spooky looking. And uh, I was like, yeah, let's uh, throw that on the show. So here is what Kevin sent me. Uh, he said, Toledo has the Collingwood Arts Center. It's supposedly haunted. It's got everything someone could want from eventual ghost nuns to cults in the 60s trying to summon demons in the basement. And so uh, spurred on by that, I found uh, an article about it, a write-up at uh, hauntedhouses.com, and they've got some great pictures of it. They've got history of it. I'll link it in the show notes so everyone can see it. But I'm just going to read a couple of expert excerpts from their site. We're going to talk about the theater a little bit, the main building, and, of course, the basement. So we'll touch on the things that Kevin mentioned. Uh, the theater, the ill-humored, hate-filled entity of a nun, haunts the back rows of the auditorium, but makes the third row of the balcony, stage left, her favorite seat in the house, to crabbly watch the living. Performers on the stage rehearsing have seen her glaring at them from her seat, from her ghostly peanut gallery. If the living invade her space, this entity has been known to throw sparks and ugly images at them. As Chris Woodyard describes in her book, Haunted Ohio 3, this entity, this is an entity so full of hate that it radiated from her face and eyes when she turned her ashen face towards Chris. Then we'll hop over to the main building. This same hate-filled nun, uh, when, isn't, when she isn't in the theater, also haunts the halls and cells of the old coven. A resident was minding her own business and was on her way to get a soda from a machine when this, quote, molecular windstorm, unquote, appeared in the middle of the hallway, going right through her, making her feel enraged for a few minutes and then ice cold. Chris Woodyard reports in Haunted Ohio 3 that she felt an oppressive presence when she entered the center, which put pressure on her back for a while, causing her, causing her to hunch her shoulders. And uh, then we'll skip over to the basement. The basement is haunted by one to three rather scary entities. The entity of the nun and or an entity conjured up by an occult group. A black hooded entity has been haunting the basement and the stairways to the basement and to the Gerber house, which is another uh, building on the grounds, and has been seen gliding around, giving off anxious feeling energy. Past residents of the coven who lived there in the 1950s asked about this haunting when they visited with the manager. The haunting has been going on since the 1950s after a fellow sister killed herself. A darker entity described as an unearthly dwarfish figure dressed in a hooded black robe also gets its chuckles aggressively gliding up and down the stairs and haunting the passageways of the basement. Residents call the entity uh, the Shadow Man who brushes past them as they go down the basement into the laundry room. And there is a couple of other... Other stories, they talk about the attic, they talk about, you know, uh, the Gerber house itself, and there's just all sorts of pictures, all sorts of history on it. So I will link that in the show notes so you can check out that site and explore it yourself. Uh, but that has been this week's, this episode's uh, Your Small Town Secrets. And that will do it for another episode of the show, another one in the bag. Uh, like I said at the beginning, if you have a small town secret to share, uh, a cryptid encounter, a UFO sighting, uh, 
you know, an infamous haunted building at the end of the street, a true crime story, whatever it is, there's a bunch of ways to get it to me. You can go to stscast.com, scroll down to the uh, bottom of the page there. There's an email form that you can fill out, and that'll come right to me. Uh, while there, you can check out show notes and pictures and uh, links to merch, links to support the show. All of that is there as well. You can also get at me on social media, and that is at, at STScast on Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. They all use that same name, same screen name. Instagram is the weird one. It is at STScast.gram. Um, if you enjoy the show, uh, please leave a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, especially iTunes, and uh, let people know about it. Uh, share Share it with people. Uh, like I say all the time, every episode probably, if uh, one, if everyone that listens to the show gets one more person to listen to the show, then it automatically doubles the audience. Uh, if you want more of the show, then check out Patreon at patreon.com slash stscast or click the support tab on the website and that will also bring you to it. And there, there are three different levels of support. You can get buttons and stickers, uh, little write-ups, we're working on getting a Facebook group kind of up and running. Uh, what else do we got? Uh, access to all the music that I make for the show, MP3 downloads of all of that, as well as STS Backroads, an exclusive kind of extension to this show that comes out on the off weeks that this show doesn't come out. So if if you want if you want more of this, that is the place to get it. And next week on Backroads, we will be talking about another a police officer who encountered a UFO while on duty. We're going to be talking about Deputy Val Johnson and his experience in where a UFO actually damaged his police car. So that is what we're going to get into on the Backroads extension next weekend. So if that sounds interesting, then hop on Patreon and check it out. Uh, also, Patreon members, I'm going to tell you this now. I'm going to work on like a pre-recorded ad for Patreon. So that way I can cut it out really easily for your guys' episode and you don't have to hear me uh, uh, go on about Patreon since you're already on it. But that's it. That's the show. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for continuing to listen. And thank you for supporting. Until the next episode, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.